Well, thank you everybody for coming. We're studying the ninth chapter of Bhagavad Gita as it is. Bhagavad Gita, of course, means the song of God. And ninth chapter is, ninth and tenth chapter are the heart of the Bhagavad Gita. So we're, we're actually into the, the topmost uh, section of Bhagavad Gita. I wanted to speak for a couple minutes about Bhagavad Gita's ninth chapter deals specifically with pure devotional service. So I just wanted to mention a couple things before we actually discuss this evening's verses about the nature of pure devotional service. Generally within this material world we're all looking to obtain some, some pleasure. And within the material world we seek out that pleasure through so many different means, but uh, generally in civilized society, not bestial society, not uh, uncultured society, but in civilized society, generally the pleasures of mankind are sought in four broad categories. And Bhagavatam gives those four categories as artha, dharma, karma, moksha. Artha is economic development. Everybody wants to get in the head, ahead in the world, do they not? Everybody wants to, uh, you know, have some, uh, some nice residence and some good job that pays good money and uh, good education. So Artha means those activities that we perform in society for that economic gain, for that uh, gain in uh, our, our living arrangement. Artha Dharma... Dharma, it means religiosity. And we notice that every civilized culture generally has a system of religion, and that system of religion is there in order for their upliftment, for their betterment. So we have betterment through economic gain. We have betterment through religious practices. We, in a culture society, people don't just act in an uncivilized way. In other words, they don't simply uh, do what they like. Civilized society means cultured society. Cultured society means regulations, and generally those regulations that keep society in balance are regulations, at least in a cultured society, that are based on religious principle. The principles may change from society to society based on traditional and uh, sociological and also Spiritual experiences, it's presented by saints of that particular culture. So, religiosity, dharma, artha, dharma, karma. Karma means sense gratification. And we're all trying to please our senses. We try to hear nice things, see beautiful things, smell fragrant beautiful things, taste beautiful things, feel beautiful things. In this way, we're trying to enjoy this world through our senses. So we have... These three things basically constitute, for human society, those things that are desirable in life. Artha, economic development, kama, sense gratification, dharma, religiosity for our upliftment and to keep society in balance. And also, most religions in the world, if you really look there, they're looking so that things are going to be better for us in the next life. So religion provides those opportunities. And the final thing that mankind 
strives for is moksha. Moksha is the Sanskrit term for liberation. Generally, mankind wants to advance, enjoy, in material life, but he also wants to be spiritually liberated. He wants to have spiritual realization. He wants to enter into that spiritual realm. These four things generally constitute what man strives for in a civilized human civilization. When we speak of pure devotional service, we're talking about a level of spiritual knowledge and execution which is above these four things. Now imagine, pure devotional service takes off where those leave off, even liberation. Now pure devotional service, being above these four standards of material enjoyment, has to be strived for by a particular class of individuals. What allows someone to enter into this most secret of spiritual realms called pure devotional service that's even above artha, dharma, kama, and moksha? And that is the path of bhakti, the path of pure love for the Supreme Lord, which is not tinged by any desire whatsoever. Wow. It's kind of beyond our comprehension. Well, how can you, how can man, how can a living entity strive for an activity which is above these things that everybody is trying to grab onto within material life? The platform of pure devotional service requires, first of all, knowledge. That knowledge, the Sanskrit term for that knowledge, is called sambandha. And sambandha deals with four things. Giving us, the living entity who has intelligence, human form means intelligence, distinct from animal life, uncultured life of an animal, <laughs> Uh, we also notice there's some uncultured societies in the world which are the same as animalistic societies. That's unfortunate. But sambanda means that there is knowledge acquired by the living entity who's come to the human form of life about four distinct items. The Supreme Lord, that one all-encompassing supreme personality. The living entity, our self this material world, and the interaction of those three items, the Lord, the living entity, the material world, and the interaction between those things. Those four items constitute sambandha. Now, sambandha can also be applied to anything material, any material activity, but generally, in the context of pure devotional service, it deals with those four items. Now, sambandha, that knowledge coming to us purely from the spiritual plane, that pure knowledge of the interaction gives the living entity 
enough spiritual resource to engage in activities that completely purify him of material contamination. Those activities are called Abhideya. And Abhideya gives us a method by which we can act, understand those four principles, act within this material world according to knowledge of those four items, the Lord, the living entity, the material nature, and the interaction between them, and ultimately bring us to a platform of perfection. That perfection is called prayojana. That perfection means that we act according to our true self, which is independent of the contamination of material existence. This ninth chapter of Bhagavad Gita is so very important because now Krishna, the Lord himself, has brought Arjuna up to the platform of synthesizing this knowledge of pure devotional service and fully implementing it within his life. If we look at the chapters up to this, the preliminary knowledge of karma, and jnana, karma means activity in this world, and the reactions resulting from that activity. And jnana means attaining knowledge, specific knowledge about how to be liberated. Pure devotional service stands above even that liberation. That means that the pleasure derived from pure devotional service is more pleasurable to the soul than even release from the suffering of material existence. No one can deny that they would like to have a life, live a life that would be free of all the encumbrances of mis and miseries. In other words, we want the perfect marriage, but we don't want it to go south on us. We want to have a perfect job, but we don't want to get fired. We want to have a perfect, we want to have perfect health and live a great life without growing old, getting diseased and die, dying. So we want all these things which are pleasurable in life, but on the material platform, all these things culminate in defeat. Tell me one thing on this platform that any of you have experienced that doesn't ultimately end in defeat. There is none. Because this material body is ultimately defeated. The strongest body, the most beautiful body, the most educated body, the most renounced body, no matter what the position is, ultimately, our life on the material world is defeated. Our life in this environment of material existence is going to be defeated. So true spiritual life, that sambanda, that knowledge that tells us about who we really are, about our true spiritual nature, that knowledge is above defeat, above anxiety. We may have enjoyment in this world, but we also have the anxiety that goes with it. I want to make sure that everybody going into the ninth chapter 
had a good understanding of what exactly we're speaking about with pure devotional service. For that definition of pure devotional service, uh, we're going to quickly review its characteristics. Because the best way to understand something is to understand what are its characteristics. And the characteristics of pure devotional service are, are best understood according to one of the greatest disciples of the Supreme Lord himself, uh, of Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Srila uh, Rupa Goswami. And he has given us basically a handbook for the execution of pure devotional service. That handbook is called Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. And uh, it has been, uh, although it is a, a very large text in Sanskrit, uh, it's been provided for us by Srila Prabhupada, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami, in, a, in his book called Nectar of Devotion. He's taken the essence and made it available for us. And what I wanted to go over before we studied Bhagavad Gita is basically that definition of pure, pure devotional service. What are its characteristics? Because by understanding its characteristics, we can understand the nature of those activities which are above normal materialistic life. Artha, Dharma, Karma, and Moksha. I want to read, I'm just going to read the headlines of what are the characteristics of pure devotional service. We're talking about pure love for the Lord, which is not, does not have some motivation. When we talk about pure love, we're talking about an interchange between the Supreme Lord and ourself that has no, there's no bargaining done on either part. It's just love flowing freely between the lover and the beloved. So when we can come to love the Lord purely, this is the pleasures. These are the characteristics that we can expect. First one is relief from material distress. Pure devotional service brings immediate relief from material distress. Second is Krishna consciousness. Pure Krishna consciousness, pure love for the Lord is all auspicious. That means everything about activities on that platform of loving the Lord are good for us in every way. There's no downside in pure devotional service. It's all auspicious. Everything about it is good. It's very rare. Loving the Lord without some motivation is a very rare thing. Very rare and it's also very rarely achieved. And we're going to touch upon this evening how it is received. What, do we, what can we do to obtain this most precious of gifts that's generally not available in human society? It attracts God. It attracts Krishna. It's so powerful to love God without a motivation on our part that the Supreme Lord takes notice. Because generally, when we go back, if we, if we back up a minute and talk about Artha, Dharma, Karma, and Moksha, when we talk about 
that dharma, that religiosity generally experienced in human society, it's always a plea to the Lord for some for something, is it not? Oh my Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Or we you know, we pray, but there, the prayer is generally give me something. We generally don't find many people in churches or whatever, mosques or synagogues, who are simply saying, My Lord, can I I just want to love you purely. I just want to can I I just want to be your lover. Unfortunately, in human society, we generally are willing to do some worship to engage in some appreciation of the Lord, but we generally go with our hands not folded, but open. We generally say, please, I'll worship, but bread, wife, job, long life, protect my children, cure my mother of cancer. We, we go, please, give me something. I pray, I'm praying for, for something for me. So when we go to come to the platform of just saying, I just want, I just want to adore you. I just want to love you. I just want to serve you without any expectation of return. When we come to that platform of approach of the Lord, then immediately he's attracted. It draws. He actually is attracted to that kind of love. Who wouldn't be? Who would not be? If someone approached us in that way, please, how can I serve you? You're the most beautiful. You're, wow. Can I fix you something? Can I make your life comfortable in some way? So it attracts God, pure devotional service. These are just some of the characteristics in Rupa Goswami's Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, pure devotional service. He also gives a, uh, a, a pretty amazing verse in that great scripture which explains pure devotional service. And I'm going to save to next week an explanation of that verse. Uh, but it's, uh, it's very deep and uh, it is the foundation of the Krishna consciousness movement. To understand that verse of Rupa Goswami's uh, given in Nectar Devotion, uh, we'll discuss. It'll give us a more depth, a more in-depth understanding of how unmotivated, how unencumbered, how unassuming for reciprocation pure devotional service is. To Bhagavad Gita. And uh, we were talking last week, we kind of left off, we didn't get real far <laughs> into this ninth chapter. So we're going to start with text four, and we'll chant that verse, it's on page 457. Mayam sarvam jagat avyakta By me and my unmanifested form, this entire universe is pervaded. All beings are in me, but I am not in them. Namajana Trimanandasya, Janajana Salakaya, 
Chakshur Unmilitanyena, Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha. I was born in the darkness of ignorance, but my spiritual masters opened my eyes with the torched light of knowledge. I offer my most respectful obeisances unto him. Such a verse of Bhagavad Gita is not understandable by our material intellect. To understand such a verse that contains what, from a material perspective, are contradictions is difficult for someone who is not receiving the knowledge of Bhagavad Gita in good association. Without the benefit of receiving an explanation to these apparently contradictory concepts that the Lord gives in his Bhagavad Gita without good direction, uh, without the intervention of someone who is fully self-realized in what we touched upon earlier, Sambandha, the interaction of the Lord, ourselves, the material energy, without that <clears throat> divine guidance in understanding the Lord's words, whether they be given in Bhagavad Gita or whether they are the words of the Lord coming down uh, from the, uh, the Vedas. The Vedas are basically the storehouse of all knowledge uh, which which gives mankind an understanding of how things are to be done within this material world. We need good guidance. We need good direction. If we're going to approach the science of self-realization and the knowledge of Bhagavad Gita, we need good help. Just like if you go to any college or university and, and, and go to any classroom, of advanced science, unless there's a good instructor, if you simply pick up the manual and try to to understand uh, the complex uh, things put forward in chemistry or or physics, uh, you know, sociology, whatever the science may be, just simply taking the book generally, the student is not able to to draw out the proper understanding on his own. If that's the nature of material education, what to speak of spiritual education which deals with affairs of the heart. And we can see that within this material world, generally the hearts of men are contaminated by so many adverse desires which have nothing to do with our true spiritual self. We desire things of the world, not of the soul. Because that is the general nature of all of us who are within this material world. For us to draw out the proper understanding of such contradictory statements by the Supreme Himself in Bhagavad Gita is virtually impossible. Let's try to draw out these by, I don't have any realization, 
but we can repeat what we've heard from people that have realization. And that is, that is the whole process of Krishna consciousness. Shravanam, Kirtanam, Vishnu, Smaranam, Padasevanam. Hearing and chanting from people who are actually on a spiritual platform, who are purified of those diseases of the heart which cloud our intelligence and make an understanding of spiritual subject matter virtually impossible. So to remove those clouds of materialism, we need that assistance, that help. Pure devotional service demands that help. Pure devotional service, what we discussed before we even came to Bhagavad Gita tonight, the definition of pure devotional service. We tried to give a glimpse into what it is, that, un, that unmotivated, loving spiritual exchange, that level of of love which has, that actually asks for nothing in return. Pure love. From that person who can perfectly reciprocate. I may have pure love, but if I give my pure love to an impure recipient, then there's not going to be a fulfilling exchange there. I'm going to be frustrated. But if I give that unrequited love to the Supreme Lord, He's the perfect one who, who has everything in all perfection to take that and use it perfectly. He's not going to, there's no exploitation. Spiritual life means exchange without exploitation. Let's try to understand this. By me and my unmanifested form, this entire universe is pervaded. All beings are in me, but I am not in them. A preliminary understanding of this, as Prabhupada touches upon in the purport, is when we look to the energy that pervades this universe. That energy that we feel in this universe that pervades everything, uh, we experience through the light of the sun. Do we not? There's an energy without that sunlight in this universe providing energy, the sun rays. Without that, what is the question of material of any existence in this world? Everything comes through the grace of the sun's energy, does it not, in the material platform? There's no question of life without it. But there's a distinction between that source of the energy, the sun globe, and the energy itself. There's a source, but there's also the energy that's being dispersed seeming limit, seemingly limitlessly. In other words, we don't see the sun flickering and going out. Although the material scientists, they have a conception that the sun will eventually expire we understand from religious scripture that, that if the sun is going to expire, it's going to be done through a higher agency, not that it's going to run out of energy. 
So that energy of the sun gives us a glimpse into a spiritual understanding. That spiritual understanding being, how does the Supreme Lord expand and pervade his energy throughout this material universe? But also, there's a distinction between the energy and the source of the energy. Just as there's a distinction between the sun and the energy of the sun. There's also a distinction between the Supreme Lord himself and the manifestation of his energies, both spiritual and material. Because we're also part of the energy of God, are we not? We live by the pervasiveness of his energy, as we touched upon, one of which, the predominant one, is the sunlight. And we also realize that we have a spiritual existence. If we have any any spiritual intelligence, we realize there's something beyond this material body. So if we have some glimmer of an understanding of spirit, we also know that has to come from some other source. It's not that we made ourselves. That gives us an, a bit of an understanding of what Krishna is discussing here. And the first thing that Prabhupada mentions in the purport is he quotes a verse. Atashri Krishna Namadi Na Bhavad Graham Indriya. With our material senses, with our hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, feeling, with these material knowledge acquiring senses, we're not going to be able to perceive the Lord. Not with these material instruments. Ata Shri Krishna Nabadi, Nabavad Grahamendriya. Well, if we can't perceive God by hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting with these material facilities, what, what do we have that allows us to perceive the Lord? Sevan Mukhi Hejivadal, Swayamevasparachyada. We can begin perceive Him by spiritual vibration. Spiritual vibration is distinct from material sound. Spiritual vibration coming from the transcendental realm is non-different from the Lord himself. All the great acharyas have explained this. And there is a specific spiritual vibration which is fully non-different from the Lord himself. That vibration is his holy name. And the Lord himself explained that there's hundreds and millions of names for the Lord. And if we can somehow or other attain even a detraction for the Lord's name, it is so spiritually potent and non-different from the Lord that it can purify us of material contamination. So, Sevan Mukhi He Jiva Dao. With the tongue, with the vibration of the, of the transcendental name of the Lord, which is coming to us by the grace of a pure devotee. As we mentioned, what is the characteristic of that pure devotee? He is here without any self-motivation himself. He has no 
no existence on the material platform. By that I mean he has no desire, like we have in life, to exploit this world for his own pleasure. His pleasure is there. Everybody has to have pleasure. None of us can live without pleasure. But his pleasure is totally on the spiritual platform. So he allows us to use our tongue under his direction and he blesses us with transcendental sound vibration which can purify us and allow us to actually experience God in this world. To come to that platform of experience we have to come to the platform of pure devotional service. No artha, karma, dharma or moksha mixed in with our desire to engage on the spiritual platform. Does that make sense? No artha, dharma, karma, or moksha. No desires to enjoy. No desires to have wealth. No desires to use religiosity for our benefit in the material world. And no desires to no desire to make a demand that upon the Lord that I'll only serve you if I'm free of all the miseries of material life. Artha, Dharma, Karma, Moksha. Free of that, above that, when we leave those things aside, which as I said, human society strives for continually in this world, when we leave those things aside, then we can leave this world aside then we can come to the platform of pure love. Then we can come to the platform of having an understanding and experience of the Lord on the transcendental platform. Then we can come to a knowledge and intelligence that allows us to understand and fully appreciate how these apparent contradictions can be reconciled, can be harmonized. So that harmony has to be there. By me and my unmanifested form, this entire universe is pervaded. God's saying, I'm everywhere. My, I'm everywhere. All beings are in me. All of you exist in my existence. But I am not in them. Everything rests on me. Everything's in me, but I'm not in them. Then he goes on to say, and yet everything that is created does not rest in me. Wait, everything rests in you, but it doesn't rest in you? How does that work? Behold my mystic opulence. Oh, that's how it works. Mystic, we touched upon this last week. What's that word mystic mean? Magical. It's beyond our comprehension with our sense perception. It's there. It's working. It's doing its thing. But with our eyes, with our ears, with our smell, with our taste, with our touch, we're not going to be able to see how it's exactly working. It's magical. Just like when we go and we watch the music. 
magician who's on the stage performing this and that trick. He's performing these things and we're trying to understand how did he make a complete train car disappear outside the casino? How did he do that? I don't know how he did it. I can't, I'm looking, there was a train car, then it wasn't there. Wow, how did that happen? I can't do that. But he did it. He did some magic. Some trick. He's never going to tell you either. Krishna will tell you how his magic works. But here he's explaining that you can't understand how I'm in and pervade everything and everybody is in me, but then how I'm separate. You can't understand that because I'm, I, my mystical opulence is working. My magic is working. Although I am the maintainer of all living entities and although I am everywhere, I am not a part of this cosmic manifestation. For myself is the very source of creation. My energy is pervading everything. I'm everywhere through my energy. But I am not part of this cosmic manifestation. For myself is the very source of creation. Going on. Understanding, understand that as the mighty wind blowing everywhere rests always in the sky, all created beings rest in me. So now Krishna's opening up a doorway where we can begin to understand how this mystic magic is working. And he's giving you an example. Understand that as the mighty wind blowing everywhere rests always in the sky, all created beings rest in me. So ultimately everything, the wind is, is there. It rests in the sky. The living entities are, are everywhere within the material universe. Not only are, are, you know, ourselves living entities, look at all the living entities, both moving and non-moving. From the smallest worm or germ up to the, the great uh, maintainers and managers of universal affairs. So many living entities. Wherever we look, we see that. But all those living entities are resting within the material cosmics, cosmos. Although they're moving here and there, although they're, they're presiding everywhere, still, just as the wind is residing within the sky, so living entities, they're residing throughout the material creation. O son of Kunti, at the end of the millennium, all material manifestations enter into my nature, and at the beginning of another millennium, by my potency, I create them again. In this purport, Prabhupada explains what he means by, what Krishna is meaning by millennium. He's talking about a day in the life of Brahma. So Brahma is the creator of, uh, who's basically uh, working under the direction of the Supreme Lord uh, to create everything that we see within material existence. Just as we have our days and nights, that creator also has his days and nights. Our days and nights are 12 hours in the day and 
depending on the placement of the sun, 12 hours of night. That is also there that in the, in the life of the creator. Uh, however, his 12, his 12 hours, his 12 hours are a long time. In our years, his 12 hours are 4,300,000,000 years. Unimaginable amount of time. And his night is that, his 12 hours of night is 4,300,000,000 years. Uh, we've kind of touched on these uh, figures before, but these uh, this 12-hour period constitutes 100 cycles of four, the four ages of mankind. 1,000. 1, what did I say? 100. Okay, no, 100, yeah. Uh, so, 1,000 cycles of the four ages of mankind. In this one day, this one millennium of Brahma, the Lord actually comes himself, personally. The supreme personality of Godhead comes once in the day of Brahma. And that was only 5,000 years ago. How fortunate we are. Because he also advanced actually twice in the day of Brahma as his personal self. Uh, he comes as the Lord, as Lord Krishna, and then he comes also as the Lord covered over in the mood of pure love. What as is, Lord Chaitanya. What is the purpose of his visit, you'd say? He says that in Bhagavad Gita in the fourth chapter, you remember? To, uh, come and whenever... Wherever and wherever mm -hmm. there's a decline in religious practice oh, oh, and a predominance of irreligion, at like that time I advent myself. Kind of restore things. Yes, restore. right. Put things back because unfortunately we have a tendency to go off track. <laughs> so Krishna comes and uh, he comes many times mm -hmm. and also Bhagavatam explains he comes in all species of life. But these are details. Moving on. The whole cosmic order is under me. Under my will, it is automatically manifested again and again. And under my will, it is annihilated at the end. The manifestation comes in, a, in Brahma at the end of his day. He kind of, there's a partial devastation of the material world. And then when Brahma gets up from his rest, uh, he again creates. And another 1,000 cycles of the four yugas comes. That's in one material universe. There's unlimited material universes uh, within the material sky. The material sky constitutes one quarter of the total energy of the Lord is the material manifestation. One quarter. Unlimited universes are there and Krishna in the eighth text touches upon the fact that he also, at the end of Brahma's life, he, he draws in the whole material universe. Everything comes to an end. So we have this temporary uh, playground. The living entity is allowed. Text 9, O Dhananjaya. All this work cannot bind me. I am ever detached from all these material activities, seated as though neutral. The Lord's saying, as long as we are not, as long as the living entities are not striving to reestablish a loving, a loving, affectionate relationship with me. As long as they haven't come 
to that platform of existence, although I create this material universe for their enjoyment and upliftment, although it's manifest, this is manifest from my energy, uh, I'm ever detached from it. I'm not affected by whatever the living entities become involved with within this world of illusory energy. Now, what do we mean by illusory energy? What we mean is there is, in the Lord's material manifestation, the reality of our spiritual existence is covered over. Just like a dream. When we're having a dream at night, when we rest, and if there's a dream, when we wake up, what we thought was important while experiencing the dream becomes completely insignificant. In a similar way, what we experience within this world, if we're not seeing things spiritually, if we're seeing things in, with an exploitive mentality, and we're seeing that things are not resting on the Lord's energy as he's discussed here, that he's pervading and he's everywhere within the material world, and all this is a manifestation of, of him, his very self. If in this world we're not seeing perfectly that spiritual relationship, then it's an illusion. It's not the real thing. Because without seeing the underlying principles, the sambanda, using knowledge to see the underlying principles of the Lord, the living entity, the material nature and their interaction, without that spiritual knowledge, then we are in an illusion state of existence. Krishna consciousness is here to bring us out of the illusion. It is available by the grace of those who have no illusion in their existence. They're free of illusion. It's explained that the pure devotee of the Lord, those that have risen above, the influence of the Lord's external material energy, they're not encumbered with the defects that all of us experience. Now, what are those defects? Imperfect senses. With imperfect senses, what's happening? We're going to be illusioned. And because of the illusion, we're going to make mistakes. And what's that last thing that we always try to do within material life? Yes. Try to take the easy way out. Those souls who have come to the platform of pure devotional service, they're no longer hampered by these four items. Until we become free, until we rise to the platform of pure devotional service, then these imperfect senses, illusion states because of those senses, the cheating mentality, these things are always going to hamper our proper sambanda, our proper understanding 
of the principles of the Lord, ourselves, the material nature, and the interaction of those. It seems like everything is uh, for material gain only. That's why we cheat, and that's why we uh, try to take the easy route. Is purely exploitation, exploit yes. Yeah, purely for the sake of material gain. Right, and that material com- gain is sought out in civilized human society for through four methods. Artha, Dharma, Karma, and Moksha. Economic development, sense gratification, religiosity, and ultimately liberation. But all these things have a tinge of the prayer is there, but... <laughs> Keep it coming. Keep right. it coming. I'll stop there. Any questions, comments, corrections? Yes. And so you're saying that the moksha is not the way. No, moksha is there. And naturally in, in, in human civilization there is a striving for the platform of moksha. But Bhagavad Gita gives knowledge of that, that desire to obtain liberation, to be free from the miseries of life, material life. But there is a platform above that freedom, which is loving reciprocation with the Supreme, without motivation. In other words, my Lord, I'll love you, even if, even if I stay in this material world, I'm still going to love you with all of my heart and all of my soul. So all the pure saints, all the pure sages... They speak of a platform of love, a platform of love that even surpasses the desire for, for personal liberation. In fact, sometimes those saintly personalities are willing to come down into human society and take the sins of all society on their back just for the upliftment of mankind. Like the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Buddha. So many saints and sages is given in the, the Puranas, the histories of India. And so many, all religious traditions have these selfless, they, they have these selfless personalities that come forth and show us a level of self-sacrifice and love for the Lord which is above even liberation, don't they? Liberation is there. We should want to end our miseries of material life. But there's a platform of love that even exceeds that. And that's the platform of pure devotional service. Something that's a little bit more than just liberation. In fact, those saints that, we're, that he's discussing, those people that have entered into those loving relationships, the comparison of the enjoyment that they have in exchanges of love with the Supreme Lord, that loving, those loving exchanges give pleasure to the soul to such an extent that they consider themselves swimming in an ocean of transcendental ecstasy. And they consider liberation to be not an ocean, but the amount of pleasure contained 
and the hoof print of a calf as compared to the ocean of enjoyment of loving the Lord unconditionally. Thank you so very much. Thank you.